if you Google the words anger management, most of the images you get are white men yelling mm. or pointing or breaking things or yelling at each other. And that's how we think about anger and anger management. But in fact, the rest of us are managing our anger 24-7. This is Here After, and I'm your host, Megan Devine, author of the best-selling book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay. This week on Here After, anger. Friends, we are talking about anger, that much maligned, much needed emotion. My guest this week is Soraya Shamali, author of the incredible book, Rage Becomes Her. Settle in, friends, this hot topic coming up right after this first break. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Before we get started, one quick note. While we cover a lot of emotional, relational, angry territory in our time here together, this show is not a substitute for skilled support with a licensed mental health provider or for professional supervision related to your work. Hey friends, I am so excited for this episode. Getting to talk to Soraya Shamali is a bucket list item for me. To be honest, one of the main reasons this show exists at all is so that I have a legit reason to talk to interesting people about difficult things. Now, you're going to hear about it in the episode itself, but I spent a lot of my 20s exploring the connections between grief, anger, women's rights, colorism, and environmental destruction, just like 
your average light topics. <laughs> but getting to talk with somebody who also finds those topics fascinating and deeply interrelated was just a joy. Now, that is another thing you don't hear very often connected to anger, joy. Soraya and I cover a lot of territory in our time together, but I wanted to preface the entire conversation by saying that when you unleash your anger, you also access joy, connection, creativity, and all the things we've been taught will never happen if you allow yourself to be angry for more than a hot second. Soraya and I had such a great time together and talked for so long. This episode is now a two-parter. The joy stuff comes in part two. So be sure to come back for that next week because it's important and it's an awesome conversation. Part one here, we definitely dunk on the stages of grief. I mean, how could we not when we are talking about both anger and grief? But more than that, we get into the real reasons why anger is considered an unevolved, negative, dark emotion, something you're supposed to move through very quickly and something you should definitely not express. If you've ever found yourself swallowing your rage because it wouldn't be polite, and honestly, who hasn't done that, you are going to get so much out of this conversation. Now we start fast and we cover a lot. Part one, right now, next week's part two. Both of them go into the listen several times folder for sure. Soraya, welcome to the show. I am so thrilled to talk with you today. Now, anger... Anger is actually one of my absolute favorite topics in the world. It's really tied to grief, of course, and we'll, we'll get into that later. But I kind of want to start out by saying the most common complaint that I get from my own work is that I'm too angry. And I really appreciate that feedback from people because to me, that says like, if, if you think I'm too angry, then I'm doing my job. I'm just wondering what's the right amount of anger for them, right? what is the right amount of anger, which is like this, this, I feel like we're going to probably spend our entire time together talking about the bullshit around the right amount of anger, but what is it about anger that freaks people out? I think it depends on who's getting angry, mm. right? So I think it particularly freaks people out if the dispossessed, oppressed, powerless get angry. That's one kind of freak out, right? Because anger is an entitlement. You get you're entitled to be angry. Some people don't have that entitlement. I think it causes discomfort and we don't like discomfort. You know, it causes sadness, it causes shame, it causes guilt, it, it elicits all of these negative and fearful emotions. Yeah. And in fact, it elicits anger when the angry person is violating norms. So gender norms in particular, angry women are a, an oxymoron. We understand angry men. We really don't want to understand angry women. No. And honestly, I'm, I think we... We excuse and allow angry men, but I don't think we understand angry men because we don't. It's like there's one channel for anger and it's like this violent, explosive, pissed off, destructive thing, which I just I think that really disses anger. Yeah. And also it's the one emotional channel that men have the right to without challenge. Right. I mean, the fact is we attribute emotionality to women and then we use women's emotionality to punish and discipline and regulate them. But in fact, the result for men is that if they feel emotions that are softer, that are more feminine, they're conflicted, they feel shame, they're punished. You know, little boys who are sad or anxious or fearful are bullied by homophobes. I mean, 
it starts so early. And so the one form of emotional expression that is conflated with masculinity is anger. And that's super dangerous and damaging. It's damaging to the individual. It's dangerous for society. But, you know, even in adulthood, we really see the ways in which it gets distributed. So for a white guy to get angry is understandable to people because it's how we define certain type of leadership. It's how we think of certain type of God, right? The angry, vengeful father. And so that confirms our stereotypes. So it doesn't make people so uncomfortable. Yeah, it's bizarre that something so violent, punitive, oppressive doesn't bug people, right? As long as it comes from the right source. The right source. I mean, if a black man, a black leader, a black president articulates anger, people are not comfortable. I mean, when Obama was president, we had an entire comedy routine sketch that the anger translator, the key, Key and Peele had a, an entire oeuvre that was just based on that, you know. And for men who don't have that kind of power, you know, a black man who sounds angry or looks angry, he doesn't even have to sound or look angry. He just needs to be a black man, Mm. much more likely to be criminalized for that, you know, than followed as a leader in the broader community. Yeah. And I I think this comes back to something we hinted at a little bit when we first got started, which is like the, the uses of anger, what anger expresses, what it points to. Can we talk about that maybe a little bit for folks who are like, okay, the only anger I know is like the anger that burns the world down that white men have access to. So when we talk about anger, what are we talking about? I mean, I think, first of all, we kind of live in a culture that thinks there are good emotions and bad emotions, right? Mm. We've been a very uh, sort of binary and oppositional understanding of the world and emotions fit into that framework. So the first thing I would say is there are no good or bad emotions. And anger in particular is a signal emotion. It's the emotion that warns us of threat or trouble or problems. And so from that perspective, we evolved to have anger so that we could survive, right? And so the question that I sort of ask in the book is why do we sever this key emotion from femininity? Because when we do that, we take away the ability for a girl turning into a woman to identify the problem, name the problem, label the problem, figure out the relationships that matter to the problem, and then seek to change it. We're, we're far, far more comfortable pathologizing an angry girl or woman, or silencing her, or medicating her, than listening to what she has to say, right? But in fact, If she can't do any of those things, she can't really help herself, you know? And so I think by the time you get to what you described, the explosive, destructive, violent anger, the anger's already dysfunctional. It's already been suppressed or repressed or sort of tessellated into a really corrosive force in in a person's life. Yeah, that backlog of anger only has escape and explosion as its root, like, you know, the, the image of sort of volcanic rage, Mm -hmm. right? Like there's this constant pressure, push this down, don't name it, don't say it, don't say that you don't like something, don't say that something isn't working for you. I often say or talk about how, you know, for me, anger is a sense of injustice. It's a message that something is not right for you. Right. And we don't get to say those things. Right. And if you don't get to say those things, they don't go away. They just get squished down and squished down and squished down and they they are going to find a way to speak those those feelings of transgression right. and 
injustice. And I think it's interesting, too, because you use the term anger management. And I wrote a lot about this because if you Google the words anger management, most of the images you get are white men yelling Mm. or pointing or breaking things or yelling at each other. And that's how we think about anger and anger management. But in fact, the rest of us are managing our anger 24-7. And we're often mismanaging our anger. And that mismanagement of the anger is, I think, what you're talking about when it mm-hmm. it turns into poor emotional regulation, bad physical health, long-term illness. I mean, there are no direct correlations between the suppression of anger and a variety of illnesses, but there are clear relationships between them, clear correlations between them that we don't understand very well. And so, in fact, for most of us, we need less anger management, (laughs) we need better anger competence, better anger understanding. I love that. I love that, that juxtaposition or that, that definition of management as repression, in a way, like, how can you keep this quiet? That's I love that I hadn't thought about it that way that management is really suppression and quieting. And, you know, I'm all about grief literacy, but anger literacy is so closely tied with that. So, I mean, we're, we're going here now. I had some other questions, but I think this is a good time to go to this. Like what, what's your relationship with grief and does it overlap with your relationship with anger? My relationship with anger evolved over my life. I was really socialized to ignore anger, to feel shame about anger. I lost the ability to recognize anger. I had so distanced myself from that. And it wasn't until I got to the point where I thought, why am I exhausted all the time? Why am I tired all the time? Why am I feeling the way I'm feeling? I didn't have words for that. And I really came to understand a couple of things, which is related to grief, which I'll explain in a minute. But once I was like, oh, I forgot anger in my life. When I started to really realize it, it felt like I'd felt myself. I'd found myself again. I was like, I remember this. I remember Mm. being seven, eight, nine, before I went into good girl mode. I remember what it felt like to be angry and to say something about it as opposed to not say anything about it, right? And what happens to a lot of women, because we self-objectify very early in our culture, is we lose the ability to feel what anger feels like in our bodies and to recognize it. And that's really a first step for many women. It's literally saying, what is that? And then when we recognize it, the second step is to use the right language, because we are also really often taught in many families and cultures to minimize the anger that women have. So we say we're tired or we're stressed or we're irritated or, you know, you find all of these ways that women minimize the thing that is bothering them because in fact they have learned that nobody really wants to hear what's bothering them and that to say what's bothering them with force or with determination risks doing the one thing that women and girls are supposed to do, which is maintain these relationships. And you might break a relationship, which is the real threat. Yeah. There's a passage in your, I think it was in an article I read of yours, where you were talking about how anger was disparaged in your childhood. And that the effect of that was managing your your anger in a way that suppressed it and, and cut you off from it resulted in social isolation which is 
what you just described there is like, which is so bizarre because we suppress our anger. We pretend we're not angry. We say that we're tired instead of that we're mad right. because we're trying to hold on to those social bonds. And what you've, ex- what you've explored is like actually suppressing your anger is what breaks social bonds. Right. And my point is that you can't really have a reciprocal caring relationship with a person if they don't know you and what you need. And anger is an expression of need or want right? You need people to care about what is hurting you. And if you can't say that, then in, in essence, you're creating a false relationship. If your spouse or your father or whoever it is in your life that you are uncomfortable expressing your anger with. So girls will express anger towards other girls. You know, there's a lot of relational aggression that girls have, but they don't express it in the same way with boys around them, for example. They don't express it the same way to their parents. And so you see a lot of what I think of as horizontal anger among girls and women. They grow up to be women who are very disparaging of other women, very punitive with other women, but it's not vertical. It doesn't go along the axes that power flows on. Mm. And that's really important. But what I really learned that is to me the nexus of grief and anger and this goes along with this idea that we live in such a binary world, is that we locate our emotions in a disembodied mind. We think of them as somehow outside of the body or closer to the body than the mind, but not of the body. But anger and grief are fully embodied. All of our emotions are fully embodied. And I had to unlearn my education. I had to unlearn the education of sort of Western enlightenment selfhood which is very much that you're a mind and your body and that rationality is different from emotionality and superior to emotionality. And, you know, we have all of these hierarchies built into our ways of knowing, and those are really damaging to our, our well-being, our relationships, our health, our ability to cope, to be resilient. All of these things, you know, are related. Yeah, I, that Cartesian split between the head and the heart and the head is prioritized above all else. Right. Right. Like that charge. is just such trash and in charge. Right. right. And so this idea that intellectualism and stoicism and distance right. from the carnal body is what we choose. And, and you know, I I spent a lot of my undergrad undo like following the the links in the chain between that separation and why we demonize women and why oh, we demonize sure. darker, you know, the darker you are are the closer you are to the earth and that's terrifying for us and like there's it's really the the link that ties everything together that demonization of the body and all of the carnal emotion that comes with with being embodied creatures right like grief and love and sadness and anger and all of those things are just they're not cool because we don't see them as clean we don't see them as pure or clean or in control. Like our mm. our our philosophy, our science, our selfhood is very much built around this idea of an agenic person in control. But anger and grief are not about control. Yeah, you know they actually highlight the ways in which we are not in control. And I would say too that everything that you just described, everything we're talking about, the denigration of black bodies the denigration of brown bodies, the denigration of women's bodies, it's a form of terror management because Mm. the fear of mortality, the fear of decay, the fear of illness, 
like all of the things that are part of being alive and being a being have been put into these containers of people. And so what you end up with is a worldview in which mind full, full of mind, able-bodied, white man becomes the idealized human being and then the universalized human being. And in fact, in terms of anger, is the holder of anger that we are supposed to emulate or that we're supposed to put our trust in. Mm. It's all about avoidance of pain, isn't it? I mean, all of the structures that we've created, all of the, the structures of oppression and who's okay and who's not okay, if that whole impetus is around, I don't like the things that remind me that I that I and the people I love and the things I care about are all temporary and subject to pain and injury and loss and suffering. If I don't want to feel those things, I need to make sure anything that reminds me of that is demonized, shunned, suppressed, because I don't want to know. Yeah. Yeah. I want to know that I am safe from pain. And seriously, like this, that whole avoidance of the reality of relatedness and pain is what has built the entire dominant repressive culture it's like it's and that shit yeah and we haven't even talked about the sort of teleology of of christianity Mm. christianity created a linear time frame in which we are ultimately without end right there's a limitlessness and and it's a and it's a movement towards perfection and 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 growth and it's all based on a renunciation of the flesh and a mortification of the flesh. And in fact, all it really does is disconnect us from living. Yeah. Right. And I don't think we can really talk about any of these things, whether it's white supremacy, male supremacy, fear, grief, anger, without thinking about just the material reality of life that our belief systems renounce. Yeah, that separation and that rising above and the the amount of shame in religious systems if you are grieving, right? Like, oh, don't be sad because you'll see them again later, like this whole overcoming of death. And I don't mean to shame anybody's religion or traditions that gives them comfort, but we do need to to name that so much of the mechanics of religion is about nothing should hurt you because there's something better. It's it's still part of that avoidance of the embodied reality of pain and grief and relatedness. Like you can't be fully related and fully connected and fully in relationship with self, other, or the world if you don't allow yourself to feel what it feels to lose that connection. Right. And, and also, I think, you know, if we go back to this notion the sort of inexorable assumption that we will get to a better place. So you need mm. to just trust that. Like, I think a lot about the stages, stages of grief, like you should be moving through those stages. Aren't you at stage three yet? Like, mm-hmm. you know, aren't you done with that yet? And in fact, that's just not the way grief works. It's not the way emotions work. It's not the way human beings work. And yet we hold people to that standard. Absolutely. And that's really dam- damaging to them. Yeah. I mean, the stages of grief are, are trash. And, and I've certainly talked about that a lot before. What I find super fascinating about 
people who are are looking at the world through the stages of grief lens like there are definitely favorite children in the stages right like anger is part of the stages of grief but don't stay there for too long you have to get to acceptance like we we made this whole system to make the messiness of human emotion approachable and measurable Mm -hmm. and even within that system anger is unwelcome Right. We, we get that you might be a little bit angry, but it's not very evolved to feel it. Right. And, yeah. and, and you know, it's interesting because I know this is more this is definitely spiral thinking what mm. we're going through. But again, there's this idea of a trajectory like trauma and post-traumatic growth. Right. And in fact, most grief is ambiguous grief. And so we have to go back to this notion of why control is so important. Because Mm -hmm. things like the stages or the propulsion or the linearity and the progress, those are just about the illusion of control. And I just think it would be better if we could culturally, philosophically, religiously, which I know many people try and do, give up that pressure to be in control, give up the really an illusion of control because it is an illusion, right? And so having the cognitive flexibility to say, actually, I am grieving. I don't know when it will end. I cannot force myself not to feel this and just being in the space, being and recognizing it, which is hard. It's hard. It's hard for so many reasons. It's hard because we're not taught that that is normal and healthy and wise. And we also don't have the tools cultural and interpersonal, we don't have the tools to navigate that. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to Women Take the Mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually 
in person and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. We've been talking with best-selling author Soraya Shamali. Let's get back to it. And you said something really interesting a minute ago, and I'd love to hear more about it. You said that most grief is ambiguous grief. Can you tell me what you mean by that? I think a lot of grief is is ambiguous. I think that it's open-ended. I I certainly know this in my life. There was a period in which I, I thought, well, grief is what you experience when someone dies. Someone dies and you experience grief. All of us will experience that grief. Everybody will experience that kind of grief. But in fact, we grieve for so many other things. And we grieve in circumstances where a death hasn't happened. And maybe it's the grief of mass incarceration killing a community. Maybe it's the grief of refugees who've had to leave their entire experiences and memories and loved ones and belongings somewhere else. Maybe it's the grief of climate disaster, right? Losing the world as we know it. None of that grief is the kind of closed grief of death. Death is grievous, but it's it's a moment. You know, it's again a, a moment in time that happens. It has a sort of a beginning and then a middle and an end. And we have traditions, and we go through the process of mourning in ways that can bring great comfort. But if you are experiencing ambiguous grief, like my my dad had dementia, so mm. we lost my father, and this is the case for millions of families. We lost my father over years in small increments. And as we lost him, we lost parts of our relationships with him and with each other. We lost parts of our identities. Like no one talks about that kind of open-ended ambiguity that happens without you even realizing it. And then you wake up one morning and you're a different person or you feel a sadness or you don't even have the words for what it looks Mm. like. Yeah, I think that's the big thing. And it's, it's one of the things that I have tried to do with this show is to broaden our understanding of what grief is. You know, the the grief connected to the death of somebody you love is difficult and emotional and challenging and has no end point and all of these things. And we have language to talk about that. Right. Like we, un- we recognize, how de- you know, the short shelf life that we allow people grieving a death yeah. set to the side for a second. Like we get it right. that you're grieving when your sister dies or your mom dies or your best friend dies. We don't have language, ritual, support, oh. structure for the grief that happens as you lose somebody by degrees, the grief that happens when your career does not go the way that you want it to. I think we start getting really possessive of what the word grief is allowed to be used for. Yeah, I think that's yeah. right. And and I think too, like, well, I don't know if you're familiar with Pauline Boss's work. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, so I came to her work because I was studying trauma and resilience at the very beginning of COVID there was a lot being talked about in terms of trauma and resilience and what was to come. And what really struck me was that in fact, it wasn't trauma, it was grief. And that we were grieving in this open-ended way for things we couldn't name. 
And she has a good framework for that. And what's interesting to me is that we're in such an individualistic culture that most people perceive resilience as a trait that they have or that they can develop. When in fact, in terms of grief, in particular, and ambiguous grief, even more so, the thing that enables you to adapt and survive and maybe eventually come to a new place is your relationships, right? Mm -hmm. it's the community that you form around you and the belonging that you can cultivate or the, the meaning that you derive. So that's a relational resilience. Yeah, which is different than this like buck up little camper, yeah. be strong, don't let the world bug you, don't let things get you down, just yeah. plow ahead, endless forward movement. Yes, optimism yeah. by demand, right? It's that thing of like the the whole resilience narrative really irks me. Yeah, and resili- I'm just resilience. Reading a book about resilience. So oh yay! I cannot wait. Yay! Oh my gosh, I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> like the resilience, we could oh we could totally nerd out about this one, but like resilience just really irks me because resilience is the thing that we demand of people like yes difficult things happen but we don't want to hear about it we only want to hear you rise above like it's another it's another way to silence totally somebody's experience and to to separate that positive attitude can't you be yeah yeah how dare you how dare you have feelings that aren't forward moving positive thinking it goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago of like you know the entire capitalistic structure of forward human progress would collapse if we allowed ourselves to be sad and angry like hello (laughs) another thing we've been dancing around this but productivity culture Mm -hmm. is a tool but it's used against us right like i think a lot about pregnancy loss and even childbirth as a process of grief that women sometimes go to. You give birth to a child and then you realize what you've lost, right? You you realize, oh, my, I'm not the person I was before and I'm at this new person or I have these new relationships. And that doesn't mean you don't love your child, but there is a difference in your life, right? And so there's no recognition of any of that. There's no recognition of what women go through anyway, or people who have children, there's there's no sense in the culture, particularly American culture, that it's tiring, it's hard work. Mm-hmm. We need rest, right? Because in fact, the goal is to get back to normal, which means optimizing yourself, peak performance, positive attitudes, like all this bullshit. Endless. Endless bullshit. And we just are not kind to people. We just don't have a caring ethic. Yeah. Like the the whole medicalization of grief is about a return to productivity, right? Like when can you go back to work and complete your job without being distracted? When can you go back to consumer culture and being up and positive and optimistic? Like when can we package you and your grief, your emotions, your anger, your sadness, your disappointment are all way too messy for us to make productive hours out of. And that is terrifying for the systems that exist. Yeah, I mean, the systems that exist are not interested. (laughs) No. There's something else that I want to bring in here. Like, this territory has been my preferred ground since I was a teenager. Like, I love this stuff. And when my partner drowned, I no longer gave a shit about this. Yeah. Obviously, I care about it again now. But I think when loss erupts into your life, these conversations feel very distant and very theoretical and despondence is the response i agree with you yeah because it feels like 
nothing matters. And that it that these conversations about the larger cultural and interpersonal sweeps have no bearing on the actual intimate life that I am living at this time. And and I get that. And I think these conversations are really, really important because the the culture that we create together, the structures that we create together have a direct impact on how your emotional experience after a big loss how that gets seen and how that gets supported and maybe like in that tight orb of a big catastrophic loss or a catastrophic injury or illness like maybe that is not the time for philosophical conversations for you and knowing that your personal experience sits within a culture that is armed against you hostile hostile to you you're right hostile to you is part of why it's so difficult to be a grieving person in this culture because the the systems are in place to make the world a very hostile place for grievers and i think like situating yourself in that and and understanding that that it's not just you it's not just you it's the world the world and also we're in the culture we can't be out of the culture really Mm -hmm. we have to live in the world we it's a capitalist society most of us have to earn money to feed ourselves and our families like these are realities right but the other thing too is when when like this is the case with anger. Part of the real reason I wrote the book was to show how social anger is, to show how constructed mm. it is. Same thing with grief, right? Same thing with the idea of emotions. We think of emotions as an internal state of an individual, as opposed to the way we communicate between in individuals as interpersons. Emotions mm. make us interpersons. We enter into, we, we become a new thing when we're, sharing emotions with with a person or with a community but because we are so individualistic we fail to think for example in terms of communal grief historic grief cultural grief sort of loss experienced over time periods that are way outside the average lifespan and why those are still relevant it's like um the diagnosis of ptsd diagnosis of ptsd is an individual diagnosis of trauma. And when the diagnosis was made, it helped a lot of people, mainly soldiers coming back from wars, Vietnam. But in fact, it's simultaneously by saying trauma is resident in an individual's mind, it simultaneously erased historic trauma of Mm. indigenous peoples or trauma related to racism, for example. It ignored the grief and trauma of women who experience rape because it said trauma of this sort, grief of this sort, anger of this sort comes from a violent attack by a stranger or in a war, which nobody could conceive a woman experiencing that in her own home. Yeah. Yeah. This idea that making a making the diagnosis, making a definition legitimizes certain kinds of emotional, relational, neurological response, and at the same time, erases any other expression of it. Yeah, because it it invalidates everything Mm -hmm. else, you know. And so we still, for example, in the DSM, the, the Manual of Diagnostics used in the United States, complex PTSD, which was suggested by Judith Herman, like in the late 70s, early 80s, to describe the experiences, particularly of women living with domestic violence or sexual violence, it's still not part of the DSM. Nope. You no, know? 
it's starting to get some airtime um, with authors like Stephanie Fu and Emmy Neatfield, yes. who we've had on the show earlier this season. But that's the that's the thing, right? Like, how do we? How do we? Hello, it's twenty twenty three. Like, can we start talking about the lives of girls and women, yeah. and the you know the the effects of millennia of trauma, violence, displacement, and what does that do yeah, to well, yeah, a body? With like you know, sort of a post enslavement syndrome, like the effects, the intergenerational effects of of violence and enslavement on American black communities mm-hmm. doesn't quite fit into the definition of PTSD. Doesn't quite. No, and there's there's no clear five-step plan to get yourself out of those things to go be a productive American. Like there's just, it, it starts to get really overwhelming when you start to see how big the web is. I remember when I was in grad school, I remember that an advisor of mine was a, a psychiatrist within one of the last remaining inpatient long-term residential psych units. And she said, I never checked this out. So if this, if this wasn't accurate and she was telling tales, I don't know. But one of the things she said was that, you know, there's a tendency to romanticize psychosis, but I can tell you that a lot of my current patients are women who were researching deep women's history and the history of people of color and it broke their brains and they couldn't they couldn't mesh the pain and suffering that they were seeing like how far that rabbit hole goes with daily lived culture and it broke something in them and I, i think that this is one of the reasons that we don't always explore this stuff is one in our own pain this bigger sweep of pain feels distant and irrelevant and I think another thing that really strikes me sometimes, and, and I love this stuff, but I think another thing that really strikes people is it's so immense and so violent and so hostile and it's everywhere. And how do we find a corner of that to hold on to and not lose our minds? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I've been talking about this actually this exact topic now talking to myself about it, mm. but also to friends I know w- that would understand this, you know, for years, I, I wrote almost exclusively about sexual violence. And what happened in that process was not only did I know my own experience of sexual violence in the culture, which I really always known, like really from the age of eight or nine, but I then experienced secondary trauma from the process of listening to other people's stories, studying, writing. And I don't think people understand enough about secondary trauma and the grief you feel. Like you just described the grief you feel when you realize what a massive task we have ahead of us. So I struggle a lot with the notion of hope because in fact, the despondence that can settle on you is honestly, in some ways, I think it. in my case, it, it felt self-indulgent is because I could afford to be despondent. I read a lot and I think a lot about people who've gone through this process over the last century and written about it and talked about it and they've come to a place of hope and hopefulness as a practice, as as what has to happen and try and learn from them because it is easy to fall down that rabbit hole and think, my God, how will we dig ourselves out? Mm. And I will say this, I've done many podcasts in the last 10 years, five years, 10 years, but very few people ever want to go down this path because in fact, they want to give people something positive. 
You know, yeah. they, they, they want to end on a high note. And I'm like, well, maybe I'm not your gal right now. <laughs> You're singing my song, you friend. Know? I'm like, okay, but did you know that before you asked me? Because, in fact, there's some things where you just have to sit with the badness, which isn't really fun for people at a dinner party, I understand. <laughs> I've been talking with Soraya Shamali, author of the best-selling book, Rage Becomes Her. Part two of our conversation is out next week. Be sure to check the show notes for ways to learn more about Soraya's work and stick around for your questions to carry with you for part one of this episode right after this break. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty, beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Each week, I leave you with some questions to carry with you until we meet again. Now, you know what really struck me in this conversation? Okay, well, two things. Lots of things, but I'm only going to share two. (laughs) One, it has been nearly two decades since my 20s. Actually, quick math, it's more than that. Whatever. But that was the time when I was really diving into research on anger and oppression and how that intersects with women's rights and environmental destruction and activism. So it was really cool to go back there with Soraya. Number two thing for this part of the episode, at one point, I think I, mit- I think it is maybe in part two of our conversation, but Soraya and I were talking about books 
and how anger itself is an endless well of material. So if you have a book on anger in you, please do it. Please, please write that book. There's just so much to say. There's so much to say about anger. There's a part two of this conversation coming up next week. So don't miss that one. And be sure to let us know what came up for you during this conversation on anger and grief and connection. Everyone's going to take something different from today's show, but I do hope you find something to hold on to. Check out Refuge in Grief on Instagram or here after pod on TikTok to see video clips from the show and leave your thoughts in the comments on those posts. And be sure to tag us in your own anger conversation starting posts on your own social media. Use the hashtag hereafterpod on all the platforms. We love to see where this show takes you. Remember to subscribe and do leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to shows. Those reviews help more than you know. Want more hereafter? Grief education doesn't just belong to end-of-life issues. Life is full of losses, from everyday disappointments to events that clearly divide life into before and after. Learning how to talk about all that without cliches or platitudes or simplistic think-positive posters is an important skill for everyone. Find trainings, workshops, books, and resources for every human trying to make their way in the world after something goes horribly wrong at megandevine.co. Hereafter with Megan Devine is written and produced by me, Megan Devine. Executive producer is Amy Brown. Co-produced by Tanya Yuhas and Elizabeth Fazio. Edited by Houston Tilly. And studio support by Chris Uren. Music provided by Wavecrush. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. 